Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. Awesome. Thank you so much. Good morning. Is everyone wrecked from worship? (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, We worship for like an hour and 15 minutes. I think we broke every church rule, church growth rule in the the book, but you guys are still here. (laughs) Church growth rule book, just throw it out. Oh, man, because we're not singing to you, we're singing to him, amen? Amen. All right, Um, so excited to be sharing this morning. Hey, I have a special family. I have some friends here that drove up from Colleen, the the Vela family, Um, Denai, Gilbert, Tatiana. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Emily and I knew Tatiana since she was like in fourth or fifth grade, and um, she's just grown into an amazing worshiper and young woman, and I'm so proud of who you are and who God has raised you up to be. So, so glad you guys are here this morning. Well, let's go ahead and and pray. We prayed a lot, but I want to pray one more time. Oh, precious Jesus, we adore you, Lord. We love you. I just say thank you for coming so beautifully here. Lord, thank you for coming here. We thank you, Lord, that you are always the guest of honor, but the moment you show up, you become the host, and we surrender our plans. We surrender our set list. We surrender everything to your lordship. So, Father, we just thank you today that you would open up hearts with the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Teach us how to love you well and love your bride well this morning. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, as Pastor Nicole said, um, I'm kicking off our relationship series today. And I've titled this message, Friends of the Bridegroom, Friends of the Bride. Friends of the Bridegroom. Friends of the, of the Bride, and really the whole focus of today is how we relate and engage with the Bridegroom Jesus directly impacts how we relate and engage with his bride, which is people. How I relate and engage with Jesus directly impacts how I relate and engage with you. I, I've discovered for myself that who the Lord Jesus is to me will be who the Lord Jesus is through me to others. And I've discovered it's almost like we are, we are funnels, and the Spirit of God, His power, it's like this pure water that flows through the funnel of our souls. And if my soul is jacked up with offense, with criticism, with complaining, then that water that's pure is going to come through that, fil- that, that filter of my soul, and it's going to come out distorted. And so this whole talk today is about how to have a healthy soul, how to be a pure funnel that the Lord can flow through to be a healthy person when we connect with his bride. And so I want to start this morning. This is going to be a real, uh, a real pastoral message. I want to try to get through this quickly. Um, but I want to start this morning in Acts chapter 1. See, when Jesus was about to go to the cross, he told his disciples, it is better that I leave you. It is better that I depart. And if I were a disciple here and I heard Jesus saying it's better that he leave, I would have to raise my hand and debate that. Like, it is better that you remove yourself. And so what Jesus is saying It is better that I remove myself physically so that a spirit of power dwells and manifests on a multitude of people. And so Acts chapter 1 says, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. So everyone in this room, if you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, you are filled with the spirit of power. Now, you are powerful people. 
powerful people when in unity, when underneath the lordship of Jesus, when underneath the submission of the cross can be a force to be reckoned with. But powerful people, when they are not in humility, when they're not in the submission of the Lord, it can cause a lot of problems and a lot of chaos. <laughs> Am I right? Living with powerful people requires that we learn successful and healthy communication, healthy confrontation. I don't know if you've realized this, but anytime you find people, you're going to find conflict around them. <laughs> going to find conflict. You're going to find issues. And almost the entirety of Paul's New Testament scriptures is really about putting out fires. It's about resolving relationships in a church context. And in any church circle, you're always going to find people who get offended, who get into complaint, who get, uh, who have trouble communicating, who just have trouble with, with uh, each other. And, and that's just life. That's, that's just church. And in many cases, um, I like to share this, this analogy. I share this a lot, but um, I, I share this story of this airline pilot who's who's uh, he's looking at, at a propeller plane and he's test flying it. He flies the airplane up to this, this high altitude. He's soaring, he's cruising. And then suddenly he looks over and he sees this rat chewing on the fuel line of the airplane. And he has two options. He could either um, descend the plane, take the time to pump the brakes, go lower, descend and deal with the rat on the ground. Or he could ascend the plane to a higher altitude that cuts off oxygen for the rat. The pilot would still have oxygen, but the rat would not have oxygen. So the pilot chose to do the latter. He chose to us in the plane to a higher altitude and he cut off oxygen from the rat. And what typically happens when a church is thriving, when we're going to high altitudes in the Lord, when we're accelerating, going to, to high places, stuff will eventually happen and you will get rats of, of offense that start chewing on the lifeline of a bride and typically the knee-jerk reaction of church leadership is to say oh my goodness we got to pump the brakes we got to take this thing down instead if we lean into offense rightly if we lean into communication rightly it will not take us lower but it will take us into higher altitudes of the presence of God that's what happens when we lean into communication healthy confrontation rightly in the presence of God or what, what can typically happen is we can try to adopt or mimic the ways of the world and try to fit them into the mold of the church. And it's kind of like King David whenever he was going to get the ark and he said, oh, the Philistines used the cart. Let's just use a cart and just do what, do what culture did. Yeah. And it didn't work out too well. Uzzah died. And all that to say we cannot mimic the ways of culture and try to fit them into the church when it comes to communication, counseling, and healthy confrontation. All right. The wonderful thing that I've, I've, as I've researched this in scripture is the Bible isn't silent when it comes to relationships. <laughs> See, we don't have to guess or try to figure out what God thinks about healthy relationships, about husband and wives, about healthy confrontation. Um, and Jesus gives many great keys and nuggets about healthy confrontation, about if you have a problem with someone, um, first go make it right and then come present your sacrifice of offering. He, he has these really great stuff. And so with any, any scripture, there are blanks left. And so this morning, I want to try to be a teacher and fill in the blanks that scripture leaves us when it comes to healthy communication, healthy confrontation. And so the first thing I really want to get at is being a friend of the bridegroom. We've established that in order to be a friend of his bride, to love the bride well, we must first love the bridegroom well, King Jesus. And so really the person I want to focus on and camp on for the rest of this morning is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is referred to as the ultimate friend of Jesus, the friend of the bridegroom. And so I want to talk about that. I believe I have no business talking to you about kingdom marriage, kingdom relationship, kingdom business if I haven't first introduced you to the king himself. And so that's what I want to try to do right now. So John the Baptist, when he first comes on the scene, he's quoting this prophecy in Isaiah 40 verse 3. And this prophecy from Isaiah says this, Isaiah 40, verse 3. 
He says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. This is his message. This is the defining message of a friend of the bridegroom. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. So John the Baptist takes on this role of what we like to call a prophetic forerunner, which means he, his role was to come before the first coming of Jesus to make sure the people of God were living in purity, to baptize them, to cleanse them, to make, if there's any wrong, any sin, to, to make everything that is high, make it straight. Anything that's crooked in their thinking, to make it straight, to prepare the way of the Lord. And I believe that John the Baptist was not the, was just a partial fulfillment of this prophecy. See, I believe John the Baptist was merely a prototype or a down payment for millions of forerunners that the Lord will raise up, not breaking and preparing the way for his first coming, but breaking and preparing the way for his second coming on the earth. And I want to suggest right now, in this room, there are doctors, there are realtors, there's businessmen and women, evangelists and pastors, teachers, prophets, there's, there's accountants who are all carrying this message in their craft, this forerunner message that says, prepare the way for the Lord Jesus. A king is coming. A king is coming. He is a king. He's a bridegroom, and he is a judge, and he is coming. So I want to suggest that everyone in this room has this mandate to be a prophetic forerunner in whatever craft you're in. You could be a creative. You could be a musician. Whatever you do, it's speaking this on the loudspeaker of the earth saying, prepare, a king is coming, a king is coming. So right off the top, when we're introduced to John the Baptist, I I really, for myself, I find three um, defining traits of a forerunner ministry. The first one is that prophets or forerunners, friends of the bridegroom, are shaped by silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. So we learn from John's life that he spent 20 years preparing for a ministry that would only last two years. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. 20 years. I, I want to just suggest to you that the Lord is more into processes than he is the outcome. He, he's more into process than he is in, in, in outcome. And so uh, John the Baptist, much of his training to be a prophetic voice was done in the wilderness context. And I just want to say this to everybody, that God tends to shape his most profound prophetic voices in the school of silence and solitude in a wilderness context. So maybe you felt like, hey, my whole life I felt like I just don't fit in. I feel like I don't attract friends very well. I feel like I've never found my people. I just want to suggest maybe the Lord has put you into a school where he's shaping a profound prophetic voice in your life right now. Silence and solitude. Number two, forerunners have a radical lifestyle and a radical devotion to Jesus. So we see John the Baptist lived off of locusts and wild honey. I'm not suggesting that anyone do that today, (laughs) but it is speaking of the standard that we're supposed to live by as believers. See, somewhere down the line, the last 10 years, cultural Christianity has lowered the goalpost, has moved it and made it more convenient. I just want to say the cross is not a cross of convenience. It is a cross of sacrifice. The cross is confrontation in itself. It is black or white. It, 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 you don't have time to make up your mind. It is confronting you in the face. The cross of Jesus Christ. That's the cross. Cultural Christianity will say, oh, it's it's okay, just whenever you make up your mind. No, it is now. The day of salvation is today. It's not tomorrow. <laughs> that is the cross of Jesus. It's in your face. It's confronting every sin in my life, everything that, that is not going to line up when I meet him in heaven. As I say all the time, I ask the Lord, shock me now. Don't shock me in the throne room. If there's anything now that's in my life that's lukewarm, I want the cross to shock it and confront it in my life. Prophetic ministry demands radical devotion to Jesus. Much of what the church calls radical these days is just the normal Christian life, right? (laughs) It's like a lot of this preaching, people might say, oh, wow, that's really radical. That's 
really offensive. That's old school. That's not old school. That's just what Jesus left for us as the standard. We're the ones who lowered the standard. It's, you know, I, I know people who've gotten real bent out of shape when they've come to church and see people dancing with flags up here. And I'm like, if that offends you, you're going to really have a hard time in the throne room when you have creatures with six eyes and seraphim and cherubim flying around. Like, you better fix that now because you're going to be in for a rude awakening in the throne room right now. So you better get over that real quickly. <laughs> Number three, they carry, prophetic forerunners, carry a clear message preparing people for the coming of Jesus. So ultimately what, what forerunners do is they prepare the generation for the unique dynamics that will happen the, the day the Lord comes. So how many of you would agree that the last three or four years have had unique dynamics in our world and in our culture? Unique dynamics. And I just want to suggest that, that this past three years have merely been a dress rehearsal for the unique dynamics we will see in culture in the generation that the Lord returns. And he's, he's needing voices that will emerge from the depths to bring context and clarity and to point people to the Lamb who is going to split the sky. That is the mandate of everyone in this room. And whatever ever sphere you're called to, your message is this. Here is the Lamb. Here is Jesus. Here he is, high and lifted up. Prepare the way. All right. Um, last big chunk of, of this message, <clears throat> I know I gave three traits of a forerunner. Now I want to give five attributes of friends of the bridegroom and how it relates to being a friend of his bride. I'm going to try to get through, through these pretty quickly. The first one, friends of the bridegroom live in deep intimacy and close proximity to the Lord Jesus. Friends of the bridegroom live in deep intimacy and close proximity. John chapter 3, 22. This is uh, really the, where I want to camp. <clears throat> then Jesus said, then Jesus and his disciples went out for a length of time into the Judean countryside where they baptized people. At this time, John was still baptizing people at Anan near Salem where there was plenty of water. I've always noticed, uh, always like to do this in scripture when I'm, when I'm given a geographic location, like a name, I always like to look up the definition of that name because you can pull out so much more revelation when you see the, the, the context of that name. Just kind of like when I first moved here, I looked up the name, the meaning of the name Dallas. The Celtic definition is he who dwells by the waterfall. Just believe that is the prophetic destiny of this metroplex. It's called to be a metroplex known for being a cascading waterfall of the presence of the Lord. And so this geographic location, Anan, where John is, is having his ministry built on, that word Anan means the spring of doves. Or a more literal translation would be eyes of doves, dove's eyes. So this speaks so much about John's ministry. If you know anything about doves, doves do not have peripheral vision. They can't be distracted to what's going on to the left or to the right, up or down. They can only see what is in front of them, singular, singular in their affection. So in other words, John's ministry was not built on a bunch of activity. It was built on fixation and adoration with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's so many amazing ministries that are doing incredible things right now for the Lord. So many things going on. But when I get into the guts of many of them, I'm seeing all these activities, but it's like, where do you have time for prayer? Where's your prayer meeting at? Where's your worship time at? And that, that is something I believe the Lord is confronting in this hour. He is reducing his bride to the place of simplicity and adoration, simplicity. So I want to say in order for us to be dynamic as friends of the bridegroom, we first must become specific in our gaze. I just watched a video of Orville Redenbacher. He's the guy who made popcorn famous. And it's just such an interesting guy. And Orville Redenbacher, he, he said this quote that just like leapt off at me. He said, find one thing to do in your life and do that one thing better than anybody else. And I just feel like the Lord is saying to his church, find one thing 
to do right now and do it better than you do anything else. It's not that we don't do anything else, all the other stuff, but it's we do prayer and worship better than we do anything else that we're going to do. Because when I am hot here, I feed the poor better. When I am burning for him here, I heal the sick better. It's all done underneath this umbrella of prayer and worship and knowing him. If, if I don't come, if I come out of an encounter with the Lord and I have less love for my neighbor than I did than before I went in, I was not talking to Jesus. I was talking to a spirit, but it was not the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so Jesus refuses to be peripheral in our hearts. He has to be singular. He has to be number one. John 3, 27. I'm going to continue reading. He says, I am the friend of the bridegroom. And notice the identity of the friend of the bridegroom. This is what he does. So if you're wondering, what do I do as the friend of the bridegroom? This is what you do. I stand nearby and listen with great joy to the bridegroom's voice. And because of his words, my joy is complete. So notice this phrase, stands nearby. This speaks of attentiveness and prioritization of the presence of God. And if we are to be people who are friends of the bridegroom and friends of his bride, it demands a lifestyle of fixation and adoration, of standing in his presence with hours upon hours. John 2, 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in him. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. I want to read this again. Just want this to land. Now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. So Jesus was moving in a group of people. He was performing signs and wonders. However, Jesus would not entrust himself to them. It's interesting. Please understand that although the Lord moves and works in a people and performs signs and wonders, according to scripture, that is not the indication that he trusts the people with friendship. I didn't say that. The scripture says that. <laughs> I want to suggest there's a difference between the visitation of the Lord and the habitation of the Lord. See, we need miracles. We want miracles. Miracles are breaking out. However, that is not the indication that we have the Lord as a dwelling place, that the Lord calls this house a place of dwelling. So I want to say that gifts of the Spirit, just because someone moves in great anointing and great gifts of the Spirit, that does not mean that they have great character, that they're great friends with the Lord. Always look at the fruit of the Spirit in someone's life because the fruit cannot happen instantaneously it takes cultivation hours with the lord and his presence to develop fruit of the spirit the gifts of the spirit are activated the fruit of the spirit is cultivated though in his presence so there's a difference also when, when we're contending for things to happen there's a difference between workers and lovers there's a big difference between workers and friends and i heard mike bickle say that there's two types of people in the kingdom. There's workers and lovers, and lovers will always get more work done than will workers. <laughs> Why? Because, in other words, lovers will get more work done in the realm of obedience because they've tapped into a deeper motivation yes. toward in love yeah. rather than obligation. Yeah. It, it doesn't motivate me to, to do something if I feel obligated to do something. What motivates me is if someone my, I love comes to me and says, will you do this for me? Love is the motivator. Love is the motivator. See, I've said this before, but lovers are addicted to his affection. Workers are addicted to direction. See, workers want tasks. Just give me the task. Give me the stuff to be done. Lovers, they, they don't necessarily, they love the, the content coming from the mouth of the one they love, but more than the content, it's just the sound of their lover's voice that moves their hearts. It's just the sound, the fact that Jesus is speaking right now. It's not so much what he's saying. Yes, I love what he's saying, but it's just the sound of his voice to my heart that moves me. All that to say friendship with Jesus doesn't come by chance, but it comes by intentionality. It comes by intentionality. Friends of God. We don't become friends of God by singing that we're friends of God. It's a great song that I grew up on. I'm a friend of God. But just because we sing about being a friend of God doesn't mean we're a friend of God. 
It takes intentionality to set in my heart saying, I'm going to pursue this one. I'm going to pursue him. Number two, friends of the bridegroom are peacemakers. Friends of the bridegroom are peacemakers. <clears throat> Matthew 5, 6 through 9 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. You know, when I read this, I'm thinking, why is it when I choose peace, I'm called a child of God? I thought I was already called a child of God just by being in his kingdom. Right. And the analogy I like, to, I like to say right here is uh, if you picture the president of the United States, the president of the United States has, is the highest office in the land. This person has um, the highest authority. Um, however, there is a difference from when the president walks passively in the streets to when the president actually comes into the office takes his seat in the Oval Office and gets the pen and starts making things happen. And I want to suggest when we choose peace in the middle of conflict, it's as if we go from just strolling in the park, I'm a child of God, to where we take our seats in heavenly places. And the Lord says on the loudspeaker of heaven, this is my child, this is my daughter, this is my son, I'm going to move on their behalf. It wasn't that I, I wasn't a son before I chose peace, but it's that I took my place of authority when I chose the place of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's important to know, I just want to say this really clearly. Just because I'm a person of peace does not mean I'm a person of passivity. <laughs> Having peace doesn't mean you are a walking mat. Or that you get to have permission to have someone run you over. Peace is not passive. It is strength and submission to the lordship of Jesus. I, I live most of my life, uh, obviously, I'm a peacemaker at heart. I want to make peace. I don't like confrontation. I don't like conflict at all. And um, especially when I was younger, I, I was such a, such a peacemaker to the point where I allowed myself to be manipulated and run over and abused because I didn't know how to, how to speak up to myself in the place of humility. And I remember um, I was working in this one specific department several years ago in a ministry, and I had a leader that was over me, and this leader had seen me grow up. Grow, grow up. This leader had seen me grow from being uh, a young man to now I'm, I'm a grown adult. Now I'm working directly underneath this person in a, this department in ministry. And uh, this, this leader, when I first started working underneath them, became very verbally abusive to me. And I just kind of let it happen. I remember one specific time, this all happened in the span of like two weeks. I remember I was down at the, the reception table of, of the building we worked at. And um, the leader walked in and I really wanted to get this person's affirmation. I'm, I would just, I would die just to have them say, hey, hello, how are you doing? Just to greet me. And so I was at the reception table, and the reception table had um, kind of this white stone, and I was just kind of hanging out there. I had my foot kind of like, like this, just kind of hanging out, um, didn't think anything of it. Then the leader walks, walks into the, the hallway, and I'm like, okay, please say hi to me. Please say hi to me. I was like so insecure. The leader looks at me, doesn't say hi, just says, get your foot off my, na uh, get your nasty foot off my stone. Walks away. And I'm like, crush. I'm like, wow, that, that hurt. Wow. And so a few days pass, and I'm sitting in the building that we're working in, and I'm the only one in the building, and I have the doors locked because um, I'm the only one there. And the leader starts banging on the door, and I forgot to unlock it. So I run over to the door, and I'm expecting a, hey, thank you so much. Hey, how are you doing? I unlock it, and I say, I'm so sorry. I forgot to unlock this. This leader looks at me, and I'm not kidding you, says, dirt, dirt, dirt do better next time promise you, I'm not making this up. Third thing that happened in the span of like two weeks. Um, it was a Wednesday night before service. We were going to have a service that night. And the leader is walking down a stairs coming towards me. And I'm looking at the leader thinking, oh, please acknowledge me. Please affirm me. I didn't know that there was a young lady behind me um, that the leader was looking at. 
So the leader, <laughs> it's like a movie scene, looks at me, but thinking he's talking to the girl, says, hello, how are you doing? How was your day? And I'm like, finally, I got a firm. And I say, my day has been good. Thank you so much. This person says, I wasn't talking to you. Who am I, your mother? I was talking to her in front of a big group of people. And so um, some time went by, and I felt like the Lord was transitioning me out of this specific uh, department. Um, it wasn't because of this leader, but it was just time for transition. And I went ahead and had a meeting with this leader. And I told this leader, I felt like it's time for me to move on. I feel like God's calling me somewhere else. And um, this person kind of blew up at me and, and asked, is there anything else? Is there anything else wrong? And in my heart, I'm thinking, Tanner, shut up. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. But it was almost like the Holy Spirit under the power, under humility, was just bubbling up and wanting me to share and have a voice and speak what I've been experiencing. So it came out like it wasn't me. It was the Holy Spirit, it felt like come out and said, in humility, I said, I don't feel valued by you. I don't feel valued here. The person just said, what? what are you talking about? You don't feel valued. What are you talking about? And I don't know how I remembered these three instances, but these three instances came to mind. I said, well, this one time you yelled at me for having my shoe on the, on the counter. The second one, I told him the next one. And the third one, the leader was just silent, didn't say anything, didn't apologize. I'm like, man, I really screwed up. I did not transition well. The very next day, I'm sitting in my office, and this leader comes to me with tears in their eyes saying, I am so sorry for how I treated you. Please forgive me for my words. Please forgive me for how I talked to you. I never got to really know you. I knew you as a kid. I never knew you as an adult. All that to say, if I would have kept silent and not used my voice, I would have never had internal peace with that person. But because I partnered with the spirit of humility and spoke underneath the submission of the Lord, that person never walked over me ever again. <laughs> that person never treated me as a walking knight. That person to this day honors me. And so all that to say, use your voice. It doesn't mean that you're not being peaceful. It means that you're having uh, strength under the submission of the Lord. All right? So I just want to say that. All that to say, carry peace. Carry peace. Let's talk afterwards. I'll give you, I'll send you the contact info. <laughs> Number three, friends of the bridegroom live in humility and refuse spiritual showmanship. I'll say that again. Friends of the bridegroom live in humility and they refuse spiritual showmanship. John 1, 6 says, then suddenly a man appeared who was sent from God, a messenger named John, for he came to be a witness to point the way to the light of life and to help everyone believe. John was not that light, speaking of humility, but he came to show who is. For he was merely a messenger to speak the truth about the light. Yeah. John 1, 29. The very next day, John saw Jesus coming to be baptized and John cried out, look, there he is, God the lamb. He will take away the sins of the world. You know, I love the facet of prophetic ministry that calls, calls your name out in a crowd, that calls your birthday out. I love that. That connects me to the Lord in such profound ways. And although that is a part of prophetic ministry, that is not the apex of prophetic ministry. I want to say that right here, John is illustrating to us what the pillar of prophetic ministry is. It is not calling out names and dates. It's a part of it. But this is what it is. It's calling people to say, look here is the lamb. Don't look at me. Look at the lamb of Jesus. There he is. Look at him. Look at him. Look at him. That is the heartbeat of prophetic ministry. See, as a minister, my, my goal is not to get you to love me. It's to get you to love him. It would be great if you loved me because I have feelings too, but... My concern is that you love the lamb, that you look at him more than you look at me. I believe one of, the, one of the just kind of things rearing its head up in the body of Christ is an issue I call spiritual showmanship. Spiritual showmanship. It's kind of that look at me thing. Look at me spirit. And the culture around the globe now is obviously such a me-centered, narcissistic culture that is really trying to infiltrate itself into the precious bride of Christ. Yeah. And 
John's role was to be Jesus' best man. And in my wedding, Emily and I, my best man was my best friend named Justin Murphy. I knew him since I was in second grade. And on the day of our wedding, I was in the groom suite with my guys, and then Emily was in the bridal suite with her girls. And Justin's role in that wedding was to be right by my side and to make sure my needs were met that day. Another aspect of his role as the best man was to communicate any messages I had as the groom to the bridal suite that Emily may have. Any messaging that needs to be sent across, it was Justin's role as the friend of the bridegroom to take the message from the groom and submit it to the bride in preparation for the wedding. As Emily was walking down that aisle, Justin was right by my side. He stayed right by my side up until the second Emily stepped up to me. The moment Emily came up, Justin's role was finished. He stepped aside and Emily took his place. I want to say all that to say that in this hour, the Lord is looking now for trusted friends he can rely on with a measure of anointing, with a measure of gifting, who can relay messages between his voice and his bride in pure ways. Not only that, he's looking for messengers, for friends, who can be trusted that when the time comes, I will step aside and allow the bride to take the place I stood in with the King Jesus. There's too much Hollywood in the bride right now, and I believe he's swinging his axe at it, cutting it out, saying it's not about you. It is about the lamb. It's about the lamb. We all are human. We all, we all deal with this. Every minister deals with this. But, 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 but Jesus right now is swinging his axe at this thing in the body of Christ. Anytime I take a platform, I, I always try to be in prayer, and I always say to the Lord, thank you for trusting me with your bride This is your bride. It's not mine. It's yours. Lord, help me tend to her rightly. Help me communicate to her well. This is for you. It's not for me. The greatest way, I believe, to war against spiritual showmanship is intentionally setting our hearts to humility and meekness. Meekness is not weakness. It's kind of like peace. Meekness is not weakness. It's strength and submission to the Lord. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So in the natural, if I'm in a a debate with someone or in a disagreement with someone, and I just force myself to be right, I force myself to be prideful and to win a conversation, the reward I get in the natural is the reward of winning a conversation. In the spirit, when I choose meekness and to humble myself, the reward I get in the spirit is I get to inherit the earth in the age to come. You tell me which reward is better? Which reward is more worth it? Is it being right or is it inheriting the earth in the age to come? It's what Jesus says. It's what Jesus says. John Wesley and George Whitfield. They were amazing men of God, but in their day, they had a lot of disagreement with each other. They did not agree on a lot of their theology, and they had, a, for a season, so what I've, I've researched, uh, they had uh, just a lot of back and forth, a lot of tension in the body of Christ. And there was a season where uh, John Whit- where Whitfield was really trying to humble himself and try to, trying to uh, really just serve John Wesley and just go against the grain of what his flesh wanted to do. And one day, one of his friends, one of Whitfield's friends came up to him and said, you know, I don't think we'll see Wesley in heaven. (laughs) And John Whitfield Whitfield said, "Uh, yeah, we probably won't. It'll be hard to see him from where we're at in the throne room. He'll be a lot closer than we are in the throne room. And all that to say, he was just trying to humble himself and trying to just go against the grains of what your flesh wanted to do. Sometimes we won't understand why a person walks the way they walk until we take the time to bend low and wash their feet. That's when we truly understand why a person walks the way they walk is when we humble ourselves and wash their feet. I want to look really quick at humility in the context of marriage. Ephesians 5.21 says, And further, Submit to one another 
out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of his church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands and everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean. And typically, historically, men have used this scripture as almost like a domineering trump card on women. To just say, submit to me, that's it, yeah. (laughs) But we fail to realize the following verse which really tells us that us as men carry the heavier burden of loving our wives as Christ loves the church. The question can be asked, well, how did Christ love the church? Well, he loved her by dying for her. So I just want to say it is not hard for a wife to take her proper place when she has a husband who dies for her daily. Just want to put this scripture into context. It's not a trump card on women. It's, it's, Hey, actually, us men, we have the heavier mandate of dying daily for our wives. And it's not hard for a wife to be empowered and to have a voice when she has a man who dies for her daily. So I just want to say that. Walk in humility. I know wives are like, oh, thank God he said that. <laughs> First Peter 3.7. <laughs> Am I doing good, babe? Are you liking this? First Peter 3, 7, the same way you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should. <laughs> this scripture messes with me. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. Goodness gracious. I remember one time Emily and I got into a little argument a few months ago. Believe it or not, we do get into arguments. <laughs> And I remember we hadn't resolved this argument, and I went into my prayer closet to pray, and it was almost like I was hitting a concrete wall. I was getting nowhere, and the Holy Spirit's like, go make things right with your wife, and then come talk to me. And so I went and made things right with her. The second I stepped back into my prayer closet, I had one of the most beautiful encounters with the Lord I've ever had. That's the importance of coming to the Lord, making sure we have bridges still built between others. All right, number minute. Friends of the bridegroom live in unbroken connection, unbroken connection. <clears throat> there was a social scientist several years ago. I don't know if how many of you have heard of a lady named Brene Brown, um, but she's a social scientist, and she sought out to do research. And this research was she wanted to find what is the one thing every single person who ever walked the planet has in common as their ultimate need, as their ultimate desire. Now, we all need, obviously, food, water, and all that, but no matter who you are, no matter what race you are, what, what, uh, what sphere of society you're from, what is the one common need that everyone has? And um, she spent years researching. She wasn't a believer before she did research. She became a believer during her research. And she discovered this one thing, that every single person who ever walked the planet has a need for connection. Ultimately, we have a need for connection with the Lord, but secondly, we have a need for connection with others. It's not that we want connection. You and I need connection to survive and to be healthy human beings. And what she discovered was that the greatest enemy or the greatest block to connection is a word called shame. Shame, regret about your past, shame about who you are. That is the greatest enemy that blocks connection. But she realized that the greatest weapon against shame is a thing called vulnerability. It's about taking what I'm dealing with in the dark, bringing it before other believers in the light. There's a measure of healing and freedom that happens when we do that. James 5, 6 says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. One of the first things Emily and I did when we started dating is we found a couple that was older than us that was seasoned and we submitted ourselves to them and said can you please be our accountability we want to do this thing in a pure and holy way before the lord call out anything in my life and anything in our relationship that that you don't see lining up with scripture with the word of god and i know a lot of this younger generation we don't like people in our stuff right we don't like people but that is not kingdom that is not kingdom at all and 
many of millennials, we, we kind of twist the scripture that says, oh, don't point out the speck in my eye when you have a plank in your eye. And we use that as an excuse for people to stay out of our stuff. And we, we don't understand that that scripture says, first remove the plank out of your eye, and then you can remove the speck out of someone else's eye. It's not an excuse to just live however you want and have no accountability. That's the importance of vulnerability. And I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that to be people of connection, we have to be people of communication. We have to know how to connect, communicate. And so I want to really quick give uh, four types of communication. This is really a sub point. I kind of made a slide here. Four types of communication. I got this from Danny Silk. If you want resources, please look up Danny Silk. Four types of communication. The first one is this. It's passive communication. The core belief of passive communication is you matter and I don't. It's kind of like how I was in my story about being a peacemaker. It's like, only you matter. You're like the T-Rex in the room, and you stomp on everybody else when you come into the room. You matter. I don't. They justify devaluing themselves by painting themselves as long-suffering, patient servants who keep the peace and never make problems. They believe it is actually holy to have no needs or requirements, and it's not holy for you to not have any needs. It's human to have needs. They tend to lie because they are afraid what you will do if they find out they actually have needs. So they cover it. They hide in shame. Yeah. Ultimately, this is cowardice behavior to think that I have no need. Wow. Second one, <coughs> aggressive communication. This is really the opposite of passive. Aggressive communication, the core belief is I matter and you don't. The T-Rex in the room comes and stomps on the goats and the sheep in the room. They are large and in charge because they are the biggest, loudest, and scariest one in the room. This dynamic sends anxiety through the roof in relationships because the unequal value and power balance eliminates intimacy. Only one person is powerful in this relationship. It should be two. This creates a relationship built only on survival. Okay, we can go to the next one. Passive-aggressive communication. <laughs> this core belief is... You matter, dot, 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 no, not really. <laughs> this is kind of like that subtle, like, you know, thing. So it manipulates and controls others through active deceit and subtle but deadly forms of punishment. Known for sarcastic innuendos, veiled threats, the manipulative use of scriptures, judgment that come in the form of counsel, and withholding love. Example, this is Danny Silk. He said this. To your face, they say, oh, whatever you need, absolutely. Then they go outside and key your car. <laughs> it's the passive aggressive. <clears throat> All right, we can go to the last one. So this is the ideal form of communication given to us in scripture. It's called assertive communication. This core belief is you matter, but actually so do I. We both bring an equal measure of value to the conversation. This person refuses to have relationships or conversations where both people do not have a high equal value. So an yeah. assertive communicator responds to a passive person with this. What are you going to do about it? Why? Because a passive person tends to not want to take responsibility to say, oh, it's about you. But saying, what are you going to do about it, throws the responsibility into their court. And it gives them a measure of ownership, saying, oh, it's actually up to me. I have a voice here. Yes. They respond to a uh, aggressive person with this, I can only talk to you when you have decided to be respectful. Yes. They respond to a passive aggressive person with, we can talk later when you choose to be responsible and tell me what's really going on. So all of us in our flesh, <laughs> I'm sure everyone identifies with one of these unhealthy ways to communicate. I know I do. So it is only through the submission of the Lord, communion with him and his presence, that this stuff gets cut off of us. This stuff, this, the, the presence of God, it's almost like just a rainstorm on coals in our heart that, that need to dissipate. And so when we are in the presence of God, it's almost the stuff gets seared off of us and we learn to be healthy communicators. Last thing I want to say, and this is number five. I can have piano come up and I'm going to close here. <coughs> Friends of the bridegroom. Call out the gold in the midst of the dirt yes. of the bride. Yes, yes. 
So we've established in essence, friends of the bridegroom are prophetic voices. And the heartbeat of the New Testament prophet is defined for us in 1 Corinthians 14. It says this, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. So how I, I like to put this, a New Testament prophecy is based on learning how to call the gold out of the dirt of someone's life. Anyone can see dirt, but it takes the lens of the Holy Spirit to see gold. I was sitting in a funeral like six years ago, and I had just this random thought. It wasn't profound at all, but people were getting up and sharing beautiful things about this person who had passed away, and it just this thought struck me that not one person would ever dare get up at a funeral and call out the dirt of this person's life. It would be so disrespectful, so wrong. And I remember, I think I shared this when we talked about prophecy. I remember Emily and I, when we were living in Redding, we were up in the mountains, beautiful mountains there. And this the mountains in California where, where the gold rush happened. And um, we were going into like a, a little stream. We were right at a stream. And anytime the light, the clouds parted and the light hit the stream, the dirt underneath the stream would just light up with gold flakes, tiny, tiny. I mean, so minuscule. And so we spent about two hours just grabbing a handful of dirt, holding it up to the light, looking at all these gold flakes, picking out the gold and just putting away the dirt. And I I feel like the Lord was saying that this is how prophecy works. When you take the dirt of someone's life and you hold it up to the light of his presence, you don't see dirt, but you see the gold and you throw away everything else. This This doesn't mean we get a pass for doing what we want. This doesn't mean we can't hold people accountable and call people out. But it's calling people out in confrontation. It's not so much calling them out. It's calling them up to who they are. When um, Emily and I, we don't have to do much confrontation in Dwell Youth, (laughs) but thankfully. But when it happens, what we like to do is first call them back to who they are. Call them to their identity. Who are you? Ephesians 2.4 says, you are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in the throne room of God. So right now, we look them in the eyes. Right now, although you're here on earth, your heavenly identity is seated in heaven. God has put a crown on you. He's called you royalty. So would royalty post a TikTok like that? (laughs) Would royalty dance to a song like that? Would royalty dress like that? Would royalty, you're behaving below your nature. It's not that we're calling out what's wrong with them. We're calling out what's right with them. We're saying, come back up here. You're behaving below that identity. Your nature is here. Come back up to here, all right? That's healthy confrontation. It's not calling them out. It's calling them back up. It's like, you're better than that. No, you're better. You're better. Behave according to royalty. Royalty doesn't behave like that. Come back up. Come back up. To be friends of the bridegroom and friends of his bride, we must learn to celebrate who people are without stumbling over who they are not. To be friends of the bridegroom, we have to celebrate who people are without stumbling over what they're not. One thing I've discovered is some of the most prophetic people who can be so good at calling out gold, when they're in an unhealthy place, they can be some of the most critical people in a church. Why? Because the redeemed gift of prophecy calls out gold. The unredeemed side of the prophetic gift calls out everything that's not gold. I've been in church my whole life. And for example, if we have a church of 200 people and there's 10 people in that church who have a fence and like to complain, give it two months and those 10 people will somehow gravitate toward each other and become buddies. Why? I believe it's because offense always attracts whatever information is needed that legitimizes its existence to stay. I'm gonna say that again, offense or criticism. It always attracts whatever information or people or things needed to legitimize saying, I'm gonna stay here. I don't know how many of you have ever looked for a new car before. Anytime I look for a car, I am, uh, I'm just filling my brain with this specific car, this model and everything. And then I go out and I start driving and I start seeing that car everywhere, everywhere. It's not that a whole bunch of people just got a new car. It's that I was feeding my soul on this and I start attracting what I'm feeding myself. In the same way, if we are feeding our hearts and our souls on what's not right, on what's wrong in a person, what's wrong, we're gonna start seeing it everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. 
We must allow the Holy Spirit to power wash our hearts and filter our eyes of how we see the world around us. See, when we come to a person with confrontation, maybe we have to ask for forgiveness. Repentance is not saying, I'm sorry if I offended you. Repentance says, I repent because I hurt you. I repent because I let you down. I repent because. But saying words like, I, I, I'm sorry if you're offended. I'm sorry if you're hurt. No, 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 that's, that's not true repentance. Repentance takes ownership and says, I messed up. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Last thing I want to, last scripture I want to say here. Luke 10, 38. I share this a lot. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work myself? Tell her to help me. So you're gonna see Jesus right here in the middle of a confrontation, what he does. Martha, Martha. Anytime Jesus has to say my name twice, that's not a good indicator. <laughs> it's also not good to tell the Lord what to do. Tell her to, to help me. It's not good to tell God what to do. The Lord answered her, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. What did we talk about? One thing, one thing. The person who was distracted was the person who was offended. Notice that. <laughs> it was the one who was not at the feet of Jesus that got offended. The one who was distracted was the one filling with a, filled with offense, but the one at the feet of Jesus didn't have offense. Mary has chosen what is better. It's better than what you're complaining about. Look at me, I'm more beautiful than what you're offended about. I'm more beautiful than what you're all jacked up about. Look at me, look at me. Notice that Martha is the one that brings up Mary to Jesus. Mary not once brings up Martha to Jesus. I always thought it was, um, I just always puzzled me. Anytime I was in a season where I felt like uh, just accusation, another believer was accusing me or anything like that. I always felt just puzzled that some people would encourage me saying, it's okay, you're a child of God. God defends his children. Cause I'm thinking, well, they're a child of God too. So how does that work? Right? What I've come to discover is when one child of God partners with darkness, partners with the enemy to raise up their hand against another child of God, the one child against the other. That is what he does with his children. That is what he does. What do you do when someone is throwing accusations at you? Stay low and stay in love. Stay in love, stay here. Just gaze at his beauty, look at him. Anytime those thoughts wanna come back about what they did, it's like, oh no, put it back down. Look at him, he's more beautiful than the words they spoke about me. He's more beautiful than what they did to me. He's more beautiful, he's more radiant. I've, I've, I've encountered the Lord so deeply. I, I've, I've walked through church hurt, I've been wounded, but I have been flushed out by the presence of God to where I've been whole and healthy and where I can look back and say, Lord, thank you for that accusation. It made me know you in a deeper way. It made me know you. So I wanna, if we could just stand up and just close our eyes. I just want us to search our hearts. And maybe you're here and maybe, maybe you're the one that needs to apologize to someone. I just wanna pray that the Lord would give you grace on how to come to someone in lowliness and to say, I'm sorry and to ask for forgiveness. Maybe you're here and you're just like, oh, I'm still, that thing is still coming up of this traumatic experience of what this pastor did or what this person did. Just as the Lord flushed me out, he can flush your heart out this morning too. So with eyes closed and heads bowed, if, I'm just gonna pray over everyone here. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand. I'm sure everyone in this room is, is battling or has battled some form of accusation and hurt, but I'm just gonna pray. Precious Lord, one moment with you can do more than 10 years at a counselor or a therapist. Lord, one moment with you can do more than anxiety medication can or depression or sleeplessness. It's not that we think those things are bad, but it's just that you are bigger than those things. 
So Father, right now, we just pray that you would just be a surgeon right now. Just take your surgical hands and touch and heal hearts right now, heal wounds. And Father, if conversations need to happen, just pray you would give the people in this room the ability, the words to speak healthy in confrontation, to not say things out of a place of anger or hurt, but to say things underneath the submission of your Lordship, the submission of your humility. So Lord, bless your people this morning. If there's anyone here that is battling any, any type of relationship issues, whether it be in family or close friends, I just pray an end to it right now. May we be a healthy bride. May we be a healthy funnel so that we can be vessels where the flow of your pure water can come through us without anything tainted. We pray this in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.